Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from the Grocery Shop Trade Show in Las Vegas on Monday, October 29th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and unfortunately, Scott is unavailable for this episode, so you get twice the Jason for half the usual cost. But to make up for it, uh, we have some great news. We have two great guests for this episode. Uh, Returning to the show, a third-timer, Samir Bhavani is the Vice President of Consumer Insights at 1010 Data. Welcome back to the show, Samir. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's good to be back for the third time. Uh, it's a it's a rare uh, pool of people that have made it three times. So uh, we, we expect you to continue to be a great ambassador for the show as you've been. Uh, and then joining us uh, is a first-time guest, um, Tim Madigan, who's the Vice President of E-Commerce Commerce at Tyson Foods. Uh, welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks. Appreciate you having me. Uh, so for folks that uh, are not listening to every episode of the show, and shame on the three of you that are doing that, uh, Sammy was on show 103, which was our Amazon private label show, uh, and then you came back for one of our Shop Talk shows, if I'm not mistaken, which I think was episode 125. Um, and so uh, folks have probably heard a little bit about your background, uh, but remind everyone exactly what it is that 1010 Data does. Yeah, sure. So I think many of you guys are familiar with 1010. Um, we've been around for over 20 years now. What we do is we help companies take big data and turn them into basically smart insights using a very powerful cloud-based analytical platform. Very cool. And like uh, more specifically, you have visibility into – like how consumers uh, make or what purchases consumers make on some of the big platforms that yeah, so, are not very open themselves. Yeah, so a great way to kind of distill things down is that we have a, a very nice lens into how consumers are spending their discretionary income. So it's things like, you know, are people buying Huggies or Pampers, right? Fiji or Hint? Are they taking Uber or Lyft? Uh, very cool. And so we'll we'll hear more about that throughout the show. And then, uh, Tim, uh, one of the ways we always start, like to start the show is share a little bit of background about how you, how you sort of matriculated in your career to this current role. Sure, yeah. Um, I started my career with Procter & Gamble and uh, kind of came up through traditional sales marketing and did that for about 12 years. Uh, and while at P&G, I then had the opportunity to work with Walmart as they were trying to figure out consumables e-commerce. They wanted to sell diapers and beauty products online. Diapers.com was becoming a thing. Amazon was getting into the space. So Walmart realized they needed to, to uh, you know, start selling these products. And I was tasked with the uh, opportunity to lead that relationship for Procter & Gamble. And so over the course of five years, we built a team, uh, built the business from you know basically zero to a hundred million dollars, um, and just really learned from the very early stages uh, in consumables e-commerce what the effective ways to do e-commerce online were for consumables. Um, then had the opportunity to go to SC Johnson and work with SC Johnson in creating an overall strategy, build out a team, um, kind of put the foundational elements in place to do e-commerce across a company, which was a really great learning experience for me and also really helped uh, SCJ kind of take that first step into uh, digital and e-com. 
Uh, and then about two years ago, I had the opportunity to come to Tyson. Um, at that time, grocery e-commerce was just beginning to be a thing. And uh, Kroger's and Walmart and Amazon were all looking to Tyson as a major food supplier to understand, you know, how, to, how is this space going to evolve, unfold online, and expected Tyson to really have a seat at the table to be a strong partner in that. And so I was asked to come to Tyson to help create that capability for the company. Very cool. Um, and uh, so, A, I'm, I'm sort of jealous. I feel like uh, every place you've ever worked is super familiar. You never have to explain what your company does <laughs> right. um, to people in an elevator. Uh, when you work for a goofy agency that changes its name every week, uh, <laughs> you don't necessarily have that luxury. Um, but uh, I do have one question. At, uh, in your PNG days, was that sort of like that? So that was early uh, becoming digitally savvy. Um, was that like a shared service at PNG that tried to do that across a lot of business units, or was it a, a, um, a uh, like within a particular um, product family at Procter Gamble? Um, so, yeah, it's a great question. So it was very early in that um, we had an Amazon.com team, yeah. which was probably two, three people in Seattle, and then we had one e-commerce person that was sitting in Cincinnati banging on the brand manager's door saying, hey, there's this thing called e-commerce coming. We better figure out how to do this. Uh, and so I was one of the very first teams uh, outside of that. And and we didn't really have a corporate approach yet. Um, so very early days, I was sitting on the couch typing out content forms and really figuring out merchandising, marketing strategies, because we just didn't have a playbook yet. Uh, within about two years, though, it doesn't take P&G long, um, they – very quickly created that centralized capability and brought in the, the central team and created that corporate strategy and, and capability so that other folks like myself out in the field who are working with retailers had that sort of enabling center of expertise that were supporting us. Yeah, it, uh, it is funny. One of the, the things I've observed in a lot of companies is like that initial Amazon team, like the, they almost always, they started out as the interns, right? That's like right. it was the, yes. the, the you know most junior people in the organization got assigned to this like relatively meaningless account, um, and then obviously like as it's it's grown in prominence, it's now like one of the most significant roles in all these companies, and so it's a it's an interesting evolution to see those interns grow up to rule the world and um, uh, sort of fun. Uh, I want to dive into your role and your scope at Tyson, um, but before I do that, I want to jump back to Sammy, and I know you guys just published this uh, Rise of Digital Grocery Report, and uh, I think you can download it from your website, so I'll put a link to that in the notes, but I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about uh, like what that report was and, and maybe share some of the cool insights. Yeah, sure. So I'll intersperse some of the insights as, as we're talking as, as Tim brings some things up, but... Um, one of our one of our analysts, her name is uh, Julia Malo, authored um, authored the report, and it's this fantastic look into what we're calling the rise of online grocery. And it's very timely, obviously, right, being here at a grocery shop talk or at a grocery shop show. And some of the things that that we looked at were um, how successful are places like Peapod or Walmart Grocery, right, versus some of the other more traditional players, and you know, some of the stats that popped out, one is like just the growth of it is is outlandish, right? We're seeing over 30% year-on-year growth in, in specifically in the online grocery space. And we define that as, you know, it's different than buying something from, you know, Amazon.com or Target.com. You know, it, it has a lot to do with 
click and collect with places like Instacart, et cetera. And one of the findings that was kind of unique is that people who do shop online grocery tend, tend to spend a lot more money than the general populace. Uh, which is certainly good news. I, I find some of those, like, as the touchpoint changes, the behavior changes, stuff fascinating. Um, just just uh, a random little antidote, but it's been really interesting to me to see, like, foods that don't sell as well in store but sell great in curbside pickup. Yeah. And it's it, it was non-obvious stuff to me, but, like, sometimes these indulgence products, people don't want to <laughs> push their shopping cart around the store with a giant keg of ice cream in it. Um, and be seen by their neighbors, but that. But when it comes to having that thing loaded right in your trunk, it's get the big thing of Ben and Jerry's. Yeah. Uh, so, so that point is very important, right? The ice cream thing, the indulgent items. The other thing too is the ability for people to discover items that they wouldn't ordinarily purchase, partially for the same reasons. Also, because online gives you an opportunity to be marketed to, right? Whether it's like a vegan burger, for example. Yeah, I, I think there's potentially both a challenge and an opportunity mm-hmm. in the different marketing vehicles that are available digitally. Um, but let's uh, zoom in a little bit on Tyson. Uh, one of the things always interesting to me, a, you have e-commerce in your title, which I I'm, uh, is very near and dear to my heart, so I always like that. Uh, but I find it can have a very different scope at different companies. So can you talk maybe a little bit about what, what it means at Tyson? Yeah, so our primary go-to-market is through retailers. And so the key for us is, you know, we've spent decades in creating uh, category management and shopper marketing and all of these other uh, analytics and skills on how do we optimize the in-store experience? Um, You know, what are those right tactics and tools to to really make our business perform in-store? Well, you know, I look at my job and my team's job as doing the same thing, but for online through those retailers. So it's now, it's no longer an aisle, but it's now a, a screen that we've got to figure out how to optimize our portfolio for. So uh, that's everything from the basic content to merchandising and marketing to understanding, you know, what's working and optimizing across those three analytics. Um, and then, you know, I think Sammy made a great point around the, the portfolio and understanding the portfolio that performs well in store isn't necessarily the same one that performs well online. And so as a company, we need to kind of rethink and reprioritize what we're focused on um, as we're thinking about online. Now, that said, we're also considering, you know, the direct-to-consumer. And we have several brands in our portfolio that um, do some direct-to-consumer today. Adele's Premium Sausage is one where there's a really big fan following for it, and it's not available everywhere. And so that's a great product that, you know, is pretty pretty niche, pretty gourmet, um, where we want to make sure all, all the consumers who want to have access to the brand can find it. Very cool. And uh, Sammy had alluded earlier to like this notion of, hey, you have different tools for digital marketing than we did in traditional shopper marketing. Um, one, one of the tools we rely a lot on shopper marketing is like shelf adjacency. So you want to launch a new product. Um, one of the best ways to get eyeballs in front of that new product is put that new product on the shelf next to a popular existing product um, and, you know, use all the traditional in-store marketing vehicles to draw attention to it. 
in digital, it, like I feel like we have a lot more spear phishing. People are searching, they go, you know, right to a, a search result and then to a product listing page, um, or you know, God forbid, they're a really zealous customer, they start shopping off a recurring list. That's right. Um, and so one of the the things I always worry a little bit about is we lose some of the opportunities for those impulse sales and for. Uh, what I like to call serendipitous discovery, just because it's super fun to say serendipitous. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, you laugh now, but later in the hall, when you're just saying serendipitous, you're going to think of me. Um, so, like, is uh, like I feel like part of that challenge is the onus is going to be on the retailers to figure out. That's but right. Is that a conversation you have with retailers, and is that something you guys think about or worry about? Yeah, no, for sure, especially around new innovation, right? I and mean, that's our company's lifeblood is, you know, we want a significant amount of our growth and our sales every year to come from new innovation. So that's definitely um, something we spend a lot of time thinking about. To your point, we're sometimes uh, limited to the tools and capabilities of the retailers' uh, platforms. So it's starting there and also bringing ideas. And, and right now, especially in grocery, the shopping experience is different. Um, you're very much at a shelf view versus, you know, item by item like you have in a dot-com view. So the, the platform's evolving for sure in a different way. And so we've got to partner on, and test and learn our way there a little bit. But I will say, you know, another area that we're really trying to think through is what are the opportunities we can bring outside of the retailer platforms that enable that discovery. So we are spending, anytime we launch a new initiative, we're spending money on driving awareness uh, across, you know, online, digital, you know, it, you know other, other kind of places. And so the, the question is, how do we connect from that point of awareness or inspiration directly to the cart? And so things like recipe to cart is a great example of a, of a capability that, you know, is, is pretty new, but really unlocks that opportunity to say, hey, they found us, they are interested in us. Let's just kind of try to close the deal and put it right into the cart. Uh, and that, that one is, I'm particularly fascinated by that use case. Um, tell me if I'm wrong, but this, so this is the first year of Grocery Shop, a show dedicated to digital online. Um, and uh, regular listeners will know I spend a lot of time in line in Starbucks. I'm pretty sure every uh, second person in that Starbucks line is somehow involved in a recipe to cart business right now it seems like that that's a i ran into two yeah today uh-huh. yeah i feel like that's a area rife with innovation and people are are uh, uh experimenting and piloting new stuff absolutely it's funny you say that but you're right and it and, and it went within a year it's it's happened like that and i think you know it's there are several different approaches they're taking everything from you know i'll, I'll be a widget within your media to no no, no i'm going to be the media platform and you've got to work through me um which you know, there's going to be puts and calls for each of those. I think, you know, the more you can, I think that's, this is true across most of, of what we're dealing with. you got to be able to play within an ecosystem. And so if you're going to be a supplier, you know, sort of a new piece of innovation, you've got to be able to work within existing partnerships and, and relationships that are out there. Um, because I think it's too hard to just come in and, and uh, sort of kick out an existing agency relationship and a, you know, partnership, uh, media investment. That's just been really challenging. Yeah. Um, so one, you have a lot more experience in CPG than I do, but my, in, in, uh, my observation is like traditional model, see, there were two big marketing budgets in, in, uh, most, most, uh, I mean, probably more, but there's this sort of shopper marketing budget that's 
earmarked um, for specific retail accounts, right, um, and get spent on various activities that are mutually beneficial. And then there's a brand marketing function, um, usually, with, you know, run by some CMO that's famous for going to South by Southwest and, and doing some of those those events, uh, Con and Davos and all that crazy stuff. Um as we move to digital, I feel like a lot of the digital that you just described to me is sort of digital shopper marketing. Like some, you know, a lot of uh, the, like how my product appears on the shelf and the product content, but in a way that's analogous to the original account-based shopper marketing. But then some of those other activities you just mentioned, um, like the the recipe stuff and, and some of those other activities feel more like digital versions of traditional brand marketing. Um, and so is, do you feel like, did, like it sounds like some, both of some of those functions are in your scope and that maybe wouldn't have been true in the old world of shopper marketers and brand marketers? No, it's really interesting. So I'd say neither of them are in my scope. Uh, and that's been uh, the challenging part, right? We, we grew up in these silos and we're, we're you know, we, we figured out over the course of decades, this is how I play, this is where you play. And we wrote the rules so that nobody would, you know, step on each other's toes and um, budgets could be really clearly defined and blame could be assigned when things didn't go <laughs> so well. Um, but this has absolutely disrupted that. And I think if we're going to be effective, we've got to figure out new ways of working together. And so literally at Tyson in the last six months, we've created a digital uh, innovation group, which is the combination of a brand marketing organization kind of lead uh, our shopper marketing myself and our technology guys. And so we've created so this group that's really focused on understanding, you know, what are those emerging spaces, recipe to cart being one, um, voice being another, and how we are going to go play in those spaces and who's going to take point. Um, but it's much more of a collaborative effort. Um, and we, we're going to do this in conjunction with one another versus lots of one-offs. You're doing this over here and I'm not aware of it. Um, because unless unless we coordinate, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this well. Interesting. Uh, so in my mind, like, so you guys are evolving to sort of, you know, both organizationally figure out the right approach, and then we have to figure out what the right digital tactics are. That's right. Um, at the same time, most of these activations require some partnership with the retailer, and it feels probably like the retailer silos are also evolving. <laughs> um, and I, I think of sort of. You know, like early days at Walmart, you you know, Walmart Labs um, was in San Bruno or still is. And, and uh, most most of the merchants are in uh, Bentonville. And, um, you you know, you, you didn't necessarily have a lot of collaboration between the digital arm and, and traditional arm of the retailers. Are you seeing the functions at, at various retailers evolve to be better suited to work with you on these more integrated uh, programs? Or is that still a... A challenge. Well, it's funny because I, you know, I started in CPG, um, you know, shelf stable world through dot com, and I felt like um, it was definitely that dynamic you were talking about. But over the course of several years, especially as diapers, as an example, some of these categories became meaningful businesses that really impacted the store merchants' bottom line. Um, they, they forced that collaboration between the two and uh, integration between the two. Grocery is back to where that was eight years ago. So it still feels very much like uh, you have a lot of digital teams that are responsible for the interface and then the merchants 
who, you know, because these are store pick models by and large, their decisions for what's happening in the store is reflected online, but there's really no coordination between the two around, you know, I'm going to choose this assortment because, you know, it could work in both, or I'm going to add this item that may not be a big store seller, but could be bigger. There's none of those types of conversations happening right now, and it's much more, um, you know, I'm going to focus on my store. I know it's going to do something over here online, but those digital guys that are part of my company are going to go figure that out. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, So uh, for sure, to me, it seems fun. You're jumping... Uh, from as as uh, industries mature, you're jumping to less mature markets that are um, having to reinvent their own approaches and stuff. Which, uh, as we we talked about before the show, there's there's no playbook for that. Um, but it's kind of fun because you get to to figure it out. So uh, clearly, the retailer is also uh, evolving uh, to sort of work with you. Uh, like in this new world, like any um, particular best practices or tips you have for uh, how a brand should be thinking about partnering with retailers in, in this sort of new integrated digital world? You know, uh, the first the first thing we had to do was reassess the landscape. Uh, when, when I got to Tyson, we had decided that we were going to make a big investment in Amazon. I mean, what, of course you do, right? Amazon's the 100-pound gorilla. The dynamic in our world is in grocery specifically online is they're not quite there yet. Yeah. And Sammy, I don't know if you want to kind of speak to who yeah, is there right now. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is, that is such a big piece because like, if you look at what the general consumer is going to think, you think Amazon is winning in everything. And the reality is, is that Amazon is still very much in its infancy and just finding its feet in grocery. Right. So if you look at online grocery, um, Amazon's not even the fastest growing, right? So Walmart's the fastest growing, right? Instacart's one of the fastest growing. And while Amazon is growing, it's nowhere near the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The scale of, of what some of these others. So like Walmart has uh, over a third of the share of online and Amazon Fresh is under 10. Yeah. And so as, so as we reimagine our structure, you know, the, the structure that a lot of CPG companies started with was we're going to build this little e-commerce team that's going to fig- own pure play, build the capabilities to enable pure play. And then eventually those capabilities will sort of go out to these you know, brick and mortar, brick and click stores as they start to accelerate. Well, we've almost got to flip it a little bit in grocery because of that point. Our, our Walmart team is feeling the impact already of, of grocery online. I mean, some of those stores are doing between 5 and 10% of their business through online grocery in Walmarts. And wow, you know, that's really changing then that Walmart customer team that grew up and built all their skill sets and functionality around in-store execution. Well, they need some support now. They need capacity. They need expertise now to focus online. And so really part of what we've had to pivot on over the last year or two is say, okay, yep, Amazon's important. We're going to work on Instacart. And so that's part of the space that we own, quote unquote, pure play. But a big enabler for us now is how do we go and really focus on the Kroger's and the Walmarts? Because that's really where the size of the business is today and the growth is happening. Yeah. And I have a premise. And Sammy, I don't know if the data uh, is granular enough to validate this or not, but in my mind... 
uh, part of the secret to Walmart success and and also uh, to Kroger is curbside pickup, and and that's one of the like differentiators between Walmart and Kroger and Amazon is like Walmart has four thousand stores, over two thousand of them are now enabled for grocery pickup. Kroger, I think, has like eight hundred click and collect stores, yep. and you know. Amazon wasn't in the curbside pickup game at all until they bought Whole Foods. And to their credit, I feel like they've they've evolved that offering very quickly, but it's in 400 stores, and it's in the stores in the markets that probably in are a, most friendly to delivery versus pickup. In a handful of them. So Whole Foods is a really fun little sandbox that Amazon's experimenting in today. And it gets a lot of new, a lot of press, a lot of people talk about it. But Whole Foods is not a very big retailer. Right. That's the fact of the matter. And when you look at scale and you look across this country, right, it's the Kroger's and the Walmart's where people are shopping and which have the ability to do uh, curbside pickup. Right. At a, at a much broader scale. Yeah. Uh, very cool. So let's change topics a little bit from thinking about the retail uh, side to uh, what, the evolution of brands, right? So you you are now uh, sitting atop a, a very well-established brand that's trying to figure out digital. Uh, it feels like increasingly your competition are these new um, startup brands uh, that, that don't have near your scale, but they also don't have any of the, the legacy impediments or infrastructure that they have to carry through is... Uh, I definitely feel like that's the case in like shelf stable CPG. Are you, are you seeing that in in food as well? Yeah, you know, I, I'm reminded of, of when I was down on the Walmart team with Procter and Gamble. We were uh, looking at our shave business, and it started to decline pretty quickly, and we couldn't see where it was going. Typically, our you know reports would say, "Well, we're seeing some channel shift. It's going to do- Dollar General or." You know, it's moving over to Target and, you know, what the, but we, we didn't see, we just saw the category declining and we saw our brand declining and we couldn't understand why we're looking around the office and we saw some scruffy looking guys. And so maybe they're just not shaving as much. And this November, November thing is really, well, no, we were listening every morning on our ESPN drive in hearing about this company called Dollar Shave Club and how funny they were and great. And all of a sudden they took 300 million out of the category and out of the stores, but our classic data and our, our analysis didn't have any way to account for that, any way to show us that shifting. And so as far as we were concerned, it wasn't happening. We just, and so we were caught very flat footed. Um, that's my fear and obsession right now in food. Uh, there's a lot of these companies you're talking about, the grass fed, grass feds and the locals and the organics that are, you know, they're $10, $50 million type companies, but there are a lot of them. Um, and there's some of them that are scaling pretty quickly. Um, and so, the, you know, the issue is we just don't have the visibility to the data and to how fast or how many of them are, are out there. And so it's absolutely an area that we've just got to get better at. And it's actually, we work a little bit with uh, Sammy and 1010. And that's one of the challenges I put forth to him is how do we understand where these new up-and-comers that we just don't have on our radar uh, where where are they? Who are they? And and how fast are they growing? Yeah, 
And uh, so I'll, I will turn the question yeah. to you, Sammy. Do you like? Are you uh, starting to see some of those like new brands emerge and capture some market share online? And yeah, so that's I mean the that's the challenge, right? Everyone's been dealing with this, whether you're Nielsen or NPD or IRI or Ten Ten Data or Rakuten or whomever, is um, catching hold of of one of these companies that's all of a sudden going to start hockey sticking and becoming a really big company. And what what Tim brought up was a really good point is is when you're looking at the data, sometimes on an individual, on one D to C, it that individual D to C may be may be just too small to report on. It may be insignificant to report on. But if there's eighty or ninety of them, right, that are that are growing very quickly, all of a sudden you've got this thing and right, and the last thing you want to do is to be dollar shave clubbed again, right? You've lived through it once, you don't want that to happen again. And so what we do from the in the data world is we're constantly working with our data providers to ensure that we have visibility to anything new that comes forth. Um, you know, a great example of that is we very recently were able to split out the Walmart grocery piece from the Walmart piece once it got to a point where the scale was big enough that we had sufficient sample to make market estimates. Yeah, and uh, I'm imagining – so. That's going to become increasingly important. Um, a lot of retailers, and Walmart's a perfect example, in, in grocery, it's 100% store pick, right? Like, And so you, they're trying to promote SKUs that are available in the store, and the capability gets grown store by store. So um, I, I've been talking a little bit. I feel like some of the analysts should be thinking about uh, a same-store sales metric for online grocery because Walmart's reporting this huge e-commerce growth, and it's – you know, some of it's because they're attracting more more customers to the website and whatnot, but a lot of it's because they just added the grocery capability to a bunch more stores than they had the year before. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, you almost have to think of it like a, a, a store metric. Um, but for general merchandise, I might argue that Walmart has sort of the opposite merchandising strategy, that they're really trying to focus on having a long tail assortment, and they put a lot of emphasis on the marketplace, and, you know, they're trying to get to, like, 40 million SKUs, um, most of which are getting fulfilled by third-party mm-hmm. providers or from a fulfillment center. Right. And so like, you really need to think about them as very different different businesses. And that's another good example. So with Amazon, right, people look at Amazon 1P and Amazon 3P, and there's sufficient data to split those and to see what's happening Amazon Direct and what's happening with the marketplace. Walmart, even though they're making this push towards marketplace – candidly just doesn't have the volume in those traditional goods to warrant us breaking that out at this point in time. It might be another couple of years before we're able to see what's Walmart third party doing compared to Walmart first party. Sure. Interesting. Um, A side note, uh, one thing that is different from the heyday of Dollar Shave Club, um, you you mentioned, you know, the success they're able to have with like all those ESPN ads. You know, today, of course, as people are driving to work, they're listening to the Jason and Scott show and we, we don't take advertising on the show. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So in some ways I, I feel like we've helped insulate some of the brands from those, those digitally native brands and, and you're welcome. Yep. Uh, so one of the thing that's interesting to me thinking about the, the sort of uh, emerging brands and digitally native brands versus uh, uh, new products and innovations in existing companies is they have the, feel like they have these exact opposite problems. Um, so if I start a new company today, 
the world has made it much easier, right? I can go, you know, uh, sign up for a Shopify site and, you know, uh, I can hire, you know, 99 designs to do my marketing and I can do all these things with my credit card on the weekend, launch a company pretty quickly, find a group of loyal customers, launch a product to them and get real-time feedback. Um, And so I can innovate and iterate really quickly and inexpensively, um, which is great. Most of those brands are really struggling to hit some peak scale, and in your organization, I suspect when there's a new idea that people are like, well, can this idea be big enough to be financially material to us? Um, and so I, I'm always curious how um, big companies that already have scale think about innovation and how do you sort of you know, instill some of those advantages of the little company in your big company? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a really great question. And, you know, I, as a company, I think we several years ago came to that conclusion that, um, you know, innovation gets squashed if it's, you know, if it feels, quote unquote, too small of an idea. Um, but, it, you know, we just didn't, wouldn't let it play out. Um, you would see a trend and it might be too early. But by the time you react, it's also going to be a little bit late. So uh, as a company, what we've done is created a couple different entities internally. Uh, we have one, our innovation team, which we've had for a while, is really focused on called 12 to 18 months out, really fairly close in innovation, new flavors, new forms, some adjacent categories. Um, and so that there's that group focus there. But we also then recently created a, a new products lab, which is really kind of taking off the, the, the filters of this is what we do today to where are some interesting protein spaces coming from. So where can we innovate? And a great example of that is our Yapa chips. Um, that is uh, essentially it comes in a uh, tennis ball kind of a can. Um, and instead of being a potato chip or like a Pringle chip, it's a, it's a protein chip. So it's a brand new um, initiative, brand new idea. Um, and we're launching it in a very sort of small pilot, but scale up kind of way. That would not have happened before this team. Um, and then the other area that we've brought on is uh, our new ventures team. And so that is allowing us to find, you know, new companies that are testing um, kind of smaller niche spaces. And I'll give an example of, um, you know, Beyond Meat. So vegetable proteins, uh, Memphis Meat is another company that we've invested in, which is uh, sort of lab grown protein. And, you know, these are early days for the, for especially Memphis meat. But what we're seeing is this is an opportunity space. And as a company, we want to be able to be the world's best producer of protein. Um, you know, we're raising the world's expectation for what good food can do. Um, and that means we're going to have to go beyond just land-based animal proteins. Um, and so by investing early on in some of these companies, we get to learn a lot. And we get to see them scale and then, you know, continue to think through down the line, how do we integrate, you know, their, their products. Nice. You know, uh, so you can actually also help them scale. That's right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a really big deal too. Cause a lot of these companies have no idea how to get on a store, a store shelf. Yep. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So I, I want to follow up on that a little bit, but you, I had one terrifying thought while you were saying that, that I just want you to make me comfortable about. Um, at, uh, we're not all going to end up just drinking soylent for every meal, right? <laughs> That's pretty tasty. Have you ever had one? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you know, and I, I think, you know, look, 
as we look out just even 20 years, the challenges of feeding the world, they're pretty daunting. Yeah. Uh, and Tyson, we believe, is one of the handful of entities out there that can help find a solution. And it's going to require a range of offerings. So hopefully we can still have our steak dinners when we come to Vegas. But, uh, yeah, there's going to be new forms of protein that will have to be you know, brought in in order to feed the world. Personally, I'm banking on us all dying of dehydration before we run out of protein, but I know it's a, it's a race, so we'll have to see how that plays out. Um, going, going back to the sort of investment side of innovation, like what, what's the, out, the best outcome for you there? Like would you ultimately take an, like a 100% ownership position in some of those? Like is, are you investing primarily with the hope of getting a financial return? Is it to incubate? Companies where you didn't have an exclusive, like what, what does winning look like on the investment side? I think it's all the above. I mean, the intent really uh, right now is, is to learn, um, is to, un, you know, whether it's against some of these new product spaces that are emerging or even capabilities. So companies that do things particularly well that we want to learn more about, it's an interesting way to go do that is by, um, you know, becoming part of part owner of that company and then hopefully ingest that learning and, you know, scaled across our organization. Yep. Uh, and are you finding, uh, that it's difficult to get, uh, you know, a, a company with good financial rigor that's used to sort of focusing on quarter to quarter results to think like a longer term investor on some of the, like, you know, VCs think about a very different payback horizon than, you know, public companies that are trying to keep shareholders happy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's right. And so uh, this company, this group was purpose built to pretty much avoid that. So they've been given uh, an investment uh, amount and kind of ring fenced that amount. Um, and so they act very much like a VC company. And then we're going to go, we're going to look for this portfolio of uh, companies that either from a product or capability standpoint look interesting um, and then due diligence up through our leadership team with the recommendations. Very cool. Um, well, we're, we're coming up against time. I want to uh, do one last question. I know we're halfway through this show, and I know we've all had a lot of obligations, so I, I don't think anyone's got a chance to sort of absorb everything going on on the show. But, like, is there any trend or theme or vendor that, like, has emerged, in the, you know, that was interesting to you that you either came here looking for or maybe surprised you? You know, it's interesting uh, for me, the the conversations that happen seem to be where, for me, a lot of the value starts to come out, uh, you know, meeting with peers who are having similar challenges um, and brainstorming together. I think one of the biggest themes, though, is, wow, this is happening really fast. Uh, you know, two years ago, this wasn't a thing, um, you know, and so... The, the speed and pace that's happening. I think even our leadership at back at home and companies don't necessarily appreciate it. And so part of, you know, what I view as my job is to kind of bring that urgency back with a bit of a game plan as well for what we need to be doing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, could you imagine trying to talk more, more senior leadership into coming to an event like this? That's, next year? I think that's a great idea. Uh, you know, I, I, again, it's, it's kind of palpable. You know, you walk the floor, you see some of these, um, you know, speakers, you really do get a sense for the, the pace and urgency that's out there. And so I think it's a great suggestion of bringing in some more high profile execs and not just having them send their e-com guy out to this conference.
Yeah, for sure. And then, uh, Sammy, in, in all your conversations, anything jump out at you or surprised by all the new data competitors or anything like that? No, I'm too uh, The data competitors are great. I, I love seeing new data competitors, right? It's, just, it's, it's great. The more, the better. Um, the one thing that I've noticed, and, and I've, I've noticed this since the last, the last uh, Shop Talk show in March, um, coming into this one, is it appears to me that the companies that are sort of weathering the storm or taking the most advantage of this shift to online grocery are actually indeed those companies that have formed or in the process of forming innovation teams, either at headquarters or in Seattle near Amazon. And the ones that have not are the ones that clearly in the data show up as kind of laggards. So, you know, kind of the advice is if you, if you are a grocer or a traditional brand, uh, if you don't have some kind of innovation team together that has its own budget and actually has a seat at the table, uh, you're going to be in big trouble. Uh, very cool. That is an interesting insight. And that's going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Uh, but before we go, Sammy, if uh, folks are intrigued by the Rise of Grocery Report or just want to get in touch with you, what's, where do you hang out in the interweb? You can reach me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. I'm easy cool. to find on both of those places. Yep. And we'll put uh, links to both of those in the show notes. And uh, Tim, um, uh, I, are you an active guy on LinkedIn? Can I? Uh, yeah, that's fine. Cool, a good, a good place to network with Tim. Um, and so, you know, thanks to both of you guys for taking time out of the busy show to come speak with our listeners. As always, listeners, if you have any questions or you uh, want to follow up on any of the topics from the show, uh, you can join us on our Facebook page and leave a question. Um, as always, if this was the, the show that, you know, was finally worth it to you, do us the big favor of jumping over to iTunes and giving us that five-star review. Um, and until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.